Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to have Dr. Mark Muska in the studio. We're going to be asking the professor, which he is a professor, so get your questions ready. You can send them over to me. You can text them at 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. Didn't know that phone number was so funny, Bill. Well, it was hysterical for some reason, yeah. Mark likes the room very bright. He jumped up turned on the lights to get more lights on in here. Yep. I, I, Those I have, who dwell in the darkness uh, love the darkness. There you go with the sermon. I'm just so, saying, yeah. I kind of like the mood. And then you got to have oh, more lights. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, welcome, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. I got a couple of questions to get, get things started. And I do sure. want to, again, invite our listeners. If you've got a question about the Bible, you've maybe studied something and you can't understand it, let us know what it is. We'll sort it out for you to the best of our ability, 877-933-2484. I love John 1, verses 12 and 13, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When I read he gave the right, isn't it it a gift? Yes. He gave the gift to become children of God, but it says the right. Well, that's a right because God promised it. Okay. You know, uh, you can go before God and hold his promises and hold him to them. Okay. Which so is awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of Corey Ten Boom. I lo- used to love the I way love she'd talk about her prayer life. She said, I always pray with my Bible open and I've got it open. And here this little old lady is pointing up at God in heaven going, you promised right here, God, in your word that it's this. And she would claim those promises. I, I never forgot that. That yeah. was back in 19, what, 80, 80 uh, or 1977. And uh, what a what a woman of God! Yeah. So well, I just you know I've read that a million times and I've memorized mm-hmm. that verse and I thought to all who believed in His name He gave the right to become children of God and I thought hmm I didn't know that was a right yeah. or if He and you put it in a nice in a nice frame Mark saying well it's a promise of His so it is a right. Yep. I love that. We I've got never, it. I've never had that thought before. Fantastic. We can close in prayer. Call it a day. Sounds good to me. All right, we've got to Rebecca's going to sing the 50, closing song. 54 minutes of bumper music. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I didn't think you'd answer so quickly. All right, I got another qu- question out of John 11. Okay. Pay attention, everyone. All right, John 11. Um, the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling them, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Lazarus, yeah. Yeah. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Mm-hmm. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of Man will receive glory from this. Now we jump down to verse 12, and it says, The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he'll get better soon. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Yeah. But just in verse 4, he said, you know, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Would that have been confusing 
to the witnesses. Maybe so, but okay. they were confused most of the time anyway. They, okay. were, they were trying to catch up to Jesus all along. Because you can see the terrific irony in this whole passage, because the main teaching that comes out is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Right. Anyone who believes in me will not perish. So he's he's setting them up for an awesome teaching. This is one of those passages, Bill, I wish we have, I hope we have reruns in heaven oh, to too. be able to watch this of what he did there, you know, and Mary and Martha come out and Mary says to him, Lord, I believe, you know, you can, you can bring him back. And, mm-hmm. and then a lot of people miss this, but uh, Jesus tells him to roll back the stone. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Think if he would have just said, "Come forth," he would have emptied the tombs of all of them in the graves. There, <laughs> no kidding. That would have Isn't been incredible. Yeah. yeah, to watch that. So, and it's Mary, a powerful thing. And Mary and Martha, sisters, of course, right? Yep. And Mary was the one who uh, poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet. Yeah. So, what of what value was that to that family? Of that perfume? Yes. Oh, it had to be incredibly valuable. It was worth a lot of money. Yeah. So they saved those kind of things, you know, special things for special occasions, maybe for weddings or uh, the circumcision of a baby, a new baby, to celebrate that with something out of the ordinary uh, that you'd be able to to use like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, very, very special to have that. And so uh, it's it's something that she uses it. For Jesus, she she sees the special nature of this. Okay, here's another question uh, from Becky. She said, "Hi, can you ask Dr. Muska why the Bible often refers to God's right hand? Why not the left hand? Yeah. What is significant about the right hand?" That's part of a cultural thing where the the right hand was the favored hand. Okay. So if someone sat at the right hand of someone at a banquet table, they were the honored guest. In there, and so, uh, and this goes back uh, way before Jesus, even into uh, the the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, any of you have the, uh, friends or sons or relatives that are named Benjamin? That's made out of two Hebrew words: Ben, the word son, and Yamin is the word for right hand. And so, literally, it means son of the right hand or mm. favored son. And you know that, of course, from the story of Jacob and his twelve sons. Mm-hmm. That Benjamin was the one that was. Uh, you know, he was one of those. Oh, I'm getting myself mixed up with Joseph right now. But the idea of favored, the right hand, is uh, that's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. All right, another question, Mark. Okay, my wife and I watched the miniseries Sons of Noah, mm-hmm. in that the day the great beast of Revelation is the Catholic Church, and the second is the United States. The main thing we've been wondering is it says in the Ten Commandments, the seventh day is Saturday, and keep it holy. They said the Catholic Church changed it to Sunday. And all Protestant churches since we we are sinning by not keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, I don't know if that's fair to the Catholic Church to say they changed it because we can see in the New Testament that the church in Acts was meeting on the first day of the week on Sunday, and so it seems as though this predates Roman Catholic Church. Really, didn't come together until the four hundreds, five hundreds. It mm-hmm. was later, so I don't think that's quite fair. Uh, this is a case, though, that the Seventh Day Adventists make about having the the Sabbath day being Saturday rather than Sunday. But it appears as though it was the custom of the early church under the sanction of the apostles that they did meet on uh, Sunday rather than Saturday. Uh, this, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if I can prove this, but it may have been some of the action that they took to to uh, wean the church off of some kind of legalism about the Sabbath. 
because you'll read in Paul's letters, for example, that he uh, frowns upon those who are making a big deal about days and months and seasons and years in mm-hmm. the book of Colossians. And so there, it appears as though there was a resistance to naming certain days as holy or something like that. So I think we've got to uh, be careful about that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mark, Sue is asking, how come in Genesis it says the serpent tempted Eve? Does not say Satan tempted Eve. Yeah. Was it Satan in a serpent body? He, it was in the form of a serpent, it appears. It was, uh, uh, you know, tempting Eve there to eat this fruit from this tree. Please don't call it an apple. That's folklore. The apple growers of Minnesota would appreciate it. If you didn't do that, uh, it was a fruit that he, he was attempting her to eat. But he did appear to take the form of a serpent. Remember when God cursed him? Uh, he said, you know, cursed you'll just crawl on the, your belly uh, on the ground uh, re- as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And so it appears as though it was a snake or a serpent that he was taking the form of. And it was not too unusual then to be talking to a snake? Well, that's a, that's a really good question to get into. <laughs> I'm just you saying. Know, if I would have been Adam, I would have gone, whoa, that snake's talking. Yeah, and that would freak but, me out. Yeah, but uh, evidently uh, this was something within the realm of possibility at that time. I have to point out, in fairness to interpreters here as well, some people point to that kind of language, Bill, to say that this whole story of the fall in Genesis 3 was, in fact, a story. It wasn't something historical that actually took place, but it was to illustrate for us how human beings fell into temptation to rebel against God. So I don't personally subscribe to that. I'm very hesitant to make something allegorical or parabolic without clear evidence that it is that way. But they'll look at small details like that and and say, uh, well, that that shows this is this is a story that's being told here, not not real historic historical mm-hmm. record. So, all right, I think we're gonna take a little break. Let me know what your questions are. A lot of great questions have already come in. We've got time for lots of questions today. Let me know what they are. Eight seven seven nine three three. 2484 again 877 We'll be right back. Forget your troubles and just get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready. We're back with Dr. Mark Mosco, Ask the Professor, so let me know what your questions are. So far, we've got a lot of great questions coming in. And here's one, uh, Mark, that I find interesting. Sure. It's from Carter. He said, why did God reward Abraham with great wealth following each of his two lies regarding Sarah? Yeah, uh, this is, uh, I don't know, I think we have to be careful, Carter, not to make this a cause-effect kind of a thing, that because he lied, he was rewarded with wealth, uh, unless you're advocates for a simple lifestyle in poverty. You know, maybe you'd say, you know, that was sort of the bad result, but I don't think you can stretch the text of Genesis to say that. The uh, uh, the thing about him, remember, uh, two different times, with Abimelech and then with Pharaoh, uh, they got a look at Sarah, and they were they were having eyes to marry mm-hmm. her, and a- Abraham was afraid they were going to ki- kill him and take her, so they he said to them, 
uh, she's my sister, which is kind of one of those massage truths where she was also related to him, but she was his wife and he didn't include that. So it was a lie. And uh, then uh, both Abimelech and uh, uh, Pharaoh rebuke him when they find out the truth and he goes on his way. But to say he is rewarded for that with great wealth, he's rewarded for great uh, with great wealth for a mess of different t- causes that we really can't track down. I think we have to be very careful to connect this wealth to something Abraham did or said or believed or something like that. I like to come back to Genesis fifteen six all the time with Abraham to where God took him outside in the night and he said, look at the stars, count them if you can, so shall your descendants be. And then in verse six, it says, and Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The theological term we usually, for that usually is that that justified Abraham. Mm-hmm. He was he was considered righteous because of that faith. And so even yet today in both Judaism and Christianity, we consider him to be the father of faith. This was started what started the promises that were fulfilled with Christ. Mm. All right. Here's another question that probably needs some context. This comes out of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 5 and 6. Yep. And it says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Mm -hmm. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Yeah. So um, the question I have... Regarding that, is uh, do we get to pick and choose, you know, what we follow, what we believe, what we, what we read about? Yeah, I don't think technically, Bill. I'm going to correct you there because I don't think it's so much a, a, that we have to watch what we believe. But I, mean, I didn't say that well. It's so it's, it's, it's like an issue though of saying <laughs> how do we apply these passages to us today? Of course. So. Uh, he's talking here about both men and women. You just read the woman's part, but then he gets into it with men as well. And he says that if a man is, uh, has something on his head where with, uh, while praying or prophesying, he disgraces his head. And then a woman disgraces her head. If she doesn't have it covered, there's interpretive issues all over the place with that passage bill. First of all, we don't know if having her head covered means that she has long hair, she covers her head with her hair, or she has an actual head covering on like a veil or a scarf or something like that. You see this reflected in uh, many countries in Africa in the Middle East today with women still wearing head coverings mm-hmm. as part of distinguishing them as women. So we don't know uh, that much. But what Paul's getting at here is he's saying that they need to have their head covered. Why is that? Well, you have to trace it back to uh, uh, verses 2 and 3 where Paul's talking here. I'm going to start with verse 1. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. And now listen to verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And then he launches into this about men not having their cads covered and women having their heads covered. And so it appears this is a 
a nasty, difficult passage to interpret. But what it appears that Paul is saying is that this honors the distinction that the God has made between men and women, and that the distinction between him and uh, and uh, uh, between the Father and the Son, and between the man and the woman. So this honors the Lord in these decisions by women and men remaining distinct or distinguishable in a worship setting. Because remember, it says when she prays or prophesies, when he prays or prophesies. So this is taking part in a gathering for worship. He says women should have their heads covered. Men should not have their heads covered. And there's a whole bunch of this that has come down through the centuries. Today, this isn't really observed much. Uh, We have all kinds of sex identity and gender issues that we can talk about. And this is one of them that has faded where uh, it it, it was not all that long ago that if some man would come into a worship service with a hat on, uh, somebody like an usher or something like that would, you know, tell him to get that hat off. Mm -hmm. You you do not uh, come into worship with a hat on. Uh, That goes right back to here in 1 Corinthians 11. And in the same way, there still are some traditions around the world today where women always go into a worship setting with something on their head like that, a veil mm-hmm. or, or a scarf or something. So it's carried on down. But the key question here is, I should have gotten to this earlier, but the key question is how does this a passage apply from the first century in Corinth in the church there to 21st century yeah. here in the United States today? And obviously when you have people doing different things, we can't agree on this and exactly how much we should take of this being literal. So there are some there are some uh, church traditions that will say a woman can show her distinction from a man in other ways besides head covering or length of hair. Uh, for example, some traditions talk about a woman wearing a wedding ring if she's married, and that is a way for her to, to distinguish herself uh, from uh, her husband or other kinds of things. But uh, you, you haven't been living in a, in a cave. The way that men and women are recognized today by hair uh, style, clothing is all over the place. And so True. it'd be very difficult to draw some kind of lines today to distinguish men from women. But I find the really interesting question with this comes into the current uh, sexual morality issue we have about homosexuality and transgenderism and how this seems to go against the current of much of that and how we unpack that and we live that out in a world that we're trying to testify to is one whopping uh, uh, issue for the church to deal with today. Mm. Rebecca, I think you had a question for Mark. Are you yes. ready, are you ready you to do. ask we it? Do. Oh boy. Yeah, I kind of spraying this I on am, her. I am ever, well, I was paying such close attention to that were. last topic. I, I wanted to hear more on that, but I guess I'll have to pay and take your class. Um, but uh, we, we've we been going through Exodus and our family devotions, and yeah. so it's fun to see it through the kids' eyes as well. I so bet. we're we're looking at uh, the Ten Commandments. So I yep. believe it's 20. 20, and then um, after that, when Moses comes down the mountain, so it's about 10 chapters later. Okay. Israelites, of course, get in trouble right away and reject God for a golden calf, mm-hmm. and God sounds like he's going to destroy the people of yeah, Israel. Yeah. And he tells Moses this. Mm-hmm. And then Moses speaks out on behalf of the people and it said God changed his mind. Yep. So yep. I'm guessing this isn't a, the first time you've heard this question, nope. but specifically for parents that want to be able to have a good theologically sound explanation, does God change his mind? 
Yeah, that this one really gets people going, and it's been popularized because there have been some in the church today talking about how God does not know the future and what's going to happen in the future. Everything isn't set. The future is open. There is this uh, uh, theology of open theology. It's not as quite as... Uh, popular as it was a while back. But we got into this whole thing about how uh, how is it possible for God uh, to change his mind. Uh, just to set the context there, uh, Moses is with God on the mountain. Aaron has made the golden calf. They're worshiping there. And uh, in verse uh, 10 of chapter Exodus 32, it says, now then, this is God speaking to Moses, now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them and I will make you a great nation, Moses. You're going to be the father of the nation. I'm going to kill them all. And then he intercedes. And then the verse you're talking about is verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, is that does that mean that God really isn't uh, the same all the time? Is, does this get at what we call the immutability of God? You hear the word mutate in there, mutability. Immutable means he doesn't change. He doesn't mutate. He's the same. Well, I think the, there's many different ways that this is approached, uh, Rebecca. The, the one I like to use is to say God being immutable doesn't mean that he has to act like some computer, that every time you ask him something, he has to give the exact same answer to the similar kinds of questions. He's interrelational and he's personal. And so he is able to uh, say this to Moses with it all in mind that he doesn't say it to Moses, but if you intercede, I may spare them. But that's there. And so th- this is something that, you know, we can't push it too far and say that God didn't know what was going on. And it's like, well, oh, I didn't know you'd intercede like that. I guess I better change my mind here and and not do that. Uh, I'm thinking especially of, and maybe you can find it faster than me here, but I'm I'm thinking of another passage, though, that is troubling with this one because it has to do with um, uh, uh, the uh, sin of Saul uh, back when he was when he was king here, and uh, he sins by not defeating the Amalekites in battle. And uh, I'm getting over there right now. Uh, let's see. Here. I love the sound of Bible pages turning in my show, so don't worry about that. Yes. So That's uh, music. Samuel comes and confronts Saul about this, and uh, Saul makes excuses in the whole business, and uh, he's asking that, uh, that God would spare him and that he wouldn't uh, take the throne away from him. And so uh, let's see here. Oh... I'm looking around for. I may have to find that during a break here, but it's uh, it's a very famous passage where it says, "The Lord is not like a man who changes his mind. He does not change his mind." And so that means when he decides something like that, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. How do we live with that? With Exodus 32, well, it must have been that implied if in there. If you do intercede, Moses, then i'm willing to i'm willing to change my mind about that it looks like he's changing god doesn't change at all he's still omnipotent he's still merciful he's still compassionate he's the same god but he has flexibility in the way he deals with people and Mm -hmm. this happens uh, several different places in the scripture all right we'll take a little break we'll come back lots more with dr mark muska ask the professor which means we need your questions let me know what they are 877-933-2484 
So nice to have Dr. Mark Muska as my guest today. I always look forward to seeing him and learning from him, and I know you are too. So let me know what your questions are, 877-93-FAITH. And Mark, during the break, you found that passage, didn't you? Yeah, I did, but I turned away from it now. (laughs) uh, I was looking at the next Uh, question here that you gave me. But um, remember we were saying in Exodus 32, it says that, uh, that God changed his mind and didn't destroy the people. Well, there's a counterpoint to this. When Saul sins and Samuel uh, confronts him about it, that uh, Samuel says to him that the crown's going to be torn from you and given to someone besides you. And uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, uh, verse 28 and 29, it says, So Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So that we have to counterpoint with Exodus 32 and mm-hmm. try to make sense of both of those passages. That's the work of theology to try to bring that together, to have a coherent teaching about uh, God, God's ways, the way he interacts with us. Mm-hmm. Here's a question, Mark. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Explain, please. Yeah, this is Jesus uses this several times in his uh, teaching to make a a point about rank in the kingdom and how we love to uh, we love to rise in uh, uh, leadership and in authority in the church and uh, uh, to be the first at times. He gives this uh, illustration of the banquet feasts at times to talk about this, the first uh, last and the last first. I don't know if it's it's an expression. It's like a proverb. So we can't take it and say, okay, we got 17 people here. So number one is going to be number 17, number 17, one, uh, two will be 16, 16, two, and be that wooden about it. But the point he's making in is, is in God's order, those who are exalted in this life are not necessarily the true heroes, the ones that are doing my will and serving the way that I want you to serve. And so he's, I think he's saying it almost for shock effect for Mm. for the disciples here to get them out of this thing. I like the way it's uh, really amplified in Mark chapter 10, where uh, Jesus here, he's irritated with the disciples because they, uh, well, uh, James and John, uh, they have a humble little request. They want to be on <laughs> right. Jesus' right and his left right. hand yeah. in, when he comes in his glory, you know. And then what's worse, I think it's in Matthew where it says their mom comes and asks for that uh, for them. Can you imagine, oh, my word, to have your mom show up and do something like that? <laughs> but uh, what I like about it, though, is that Jesus makes a point about service and the way the world looks at it and the way that he looks at it. And he doesn't use that first, last, last, first uh, language, Bill. Uh, but let me just uh, uh, make uh, uh, read it here of of what of what he's saying here. So in Mark uh, chapter ten, 
he says, verse 42, calling the disciples to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So it's not quite first last, but first versus slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is taking this whole conventional thinking about leadership and power, and he's turning it right on its ear. Mm, I like that. And this is something I've I've done a lot of thought about this, Bill, and I might be wrong, but I'm I'm really concerned in the church today that we don't have this idea of leadership under control very well, of what the Bible talks about with leadership in the church and among those who are followers of Christ. I think it's been uh, tainted uh, by some worldly uh, ideas out there about leadership. Uh, it, uh, I, I tell my students sometimes, and I get in trouble with them, that I would prefer, rather than them aspiring to be leaders, that they aspire to be servants mm-hmm. and let the leadership take care of itself if that comes to them. But to aspire to be a leader, I think there's too much potential for corruption that can seep in there if you're not careful. And so uh, I I know people are probably dialing right now and you're going to get texts and emails and everything. Uh, But that I'm still working on that myself. But I I just look at this and think uh, we we really have this backwards sometimes because people like to ignore that first, last and last first thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't fit that model. Yeah. Here's another great question from a listener. I, I love her compassion. She, this may sound strange, but there's a par, uh, but there's a parable of the talents, and I've always felt bad for the one who received one talent and he buried it, and then had that taken away from him. Can mm-hmm. you please explain that? As I never understood it, and for some reason I just felt bad for that guy in the parable. But mm-hmm. I know obviously there's a good reason for the talent. That was taken away from him. Yeah, and this uh, this is very important. So I'm glad this uh, listen, great question, uh, listeners it? thinking about it because the, the what's implied, what is inferred by this parable is that the master expects a return on that stewardship to these stewards. It isn't enough for them just to go hide it someplace and give it back to him. Uh, the one who had the five talents uh, had five more, and he's rewarded. Mm-hmm. You've done something with that. And the same thing with, I think, the three talents or two talents, that he multiplied that as well. That has profound implications for us because we have been given talents and gifts. In fact, that's where we even get the word talent from, is from this thinking in the Scriptures. We've been given these things, and not just to sit on them and and to preserve them, but to use them to advance God's kingdom. Are you and talking about ministry gifts or I'm using financial it as broad gifts as or? I can, okay. Bill, right. here to say everything about you is a potential way that you can advance the kingdom. Uh, your age, your intelligence, your job, your ethnicity, uh, your intelligence, the amount of money you have, uh, all of that comes under this umbrella of being potentially usable to advance God's kingdom. And God expects that from mm-hmm. us. It's not enough just to sit there and say, well, I'm just going to hang on to this and just make sure I don't lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was this, was this person not a risk taker? Was this person being disobedient? What was the 
What was I, the I, result? Again, it's not stated explicitly, so I can't say it's okay. disobedience, but obviously it's not what the master intended by right. entrusting this talent. If he wanted to uh, just preserve the talent, he would have put it in the bank to have it earn interest. And so uh, he wants more from these stewards than what uh, this guy did with it. Remember, a steward doesn't own the stuff. He he is put in charge of it, though, that's owned by somebody else. Mm-hmm. All right, so Mark, are genealogies in the Bible a little bit hit and miss? Sometimes we hear. We, <laughs> what do you, what well, do you mean by I that? I mean, like for example, uh, Abraham. I don't know who Abraham's mother was, but yeah. you know, with some kids, we know like Obed. We know the mother of Obed. Yep. You know, so we 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 hear about some mothers, but we don't hear about other mothers. Now you think Abraham? Okay, he's a big deal. He's a big shot. Yeah. And come on, we should know his mom, his yeah. mama. Well, you will someday. I mean, so <laughs> we'll we'll find out. Okay. But uh, uh, you have to remember in the genealogies, it's more the rule than the exception to not have the women's names in there. Right. That that is something that's unusual. Uh, the Math- Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of his gospel gains attention because he has four women in there right. in that genealogy of Christ. And so that's unusual. So it's it's not unusual at all that Abraham's mom wouldn't be named. And those there. are four women with pretty questionable rep- reputations. Well, I think there's a little message being sent there uh, as well because it's, uh, Bathsheba is in there. Rahab the harlot is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a bunch. And I think maybe Matthew's setting the stage to, stage to say uh, Mary was pretty scandalous too here you know her, her she was pregnant before they were married and so uh it's almost like matthew's making a a, a sideways comment here about uh, god doesn't uh, jesus doesn't mind having some skeletons in his closet mm-hmm. he's, he's just fine with that that doesn't bother him mm-hmm. remember matthew especially <laughs> jesus is emphasizing uh, tweaking the, the legalists nose right. the jews that mm-hmm. he loved to do that you ever notice how many of his miracles he did on the sabbath right <laughs> <He> just <laughs> and you can just see him gritting their teeth at that to say you're working on the sabbath so uh, this may be a way for him to set the stage for that mm-hmm. all right in acts chapter 17 starting in verse 26 in light of some of the um racism that's happening in our country it says and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth Mm -hmm. having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek god and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him so our boundaries that are put in place uh geographical boundaries and are they there designed for the people in those boundaries to seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is uh, the context of this. This is Paul uh, speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And I just have to give a little commercial break here. Please do. Back in 2014, uh, I was a co-leader of a group that went to Turkey and Greece, and we stood on Mars Hill and uh, saw this. In fact, the Greek uh, government has a huge poster on the base of the hill that has this uh, Acts 17 passage quoted in Greek down there at the base of the hill. It really made us think because Mars Hill overlooks the Parthenon. You have to look up then from there to see the Parthenon on the top of the hill. But uh, what uh, what Paul is getting at here is that there is a witness to God in all these places, and it may not be something as explicit as what the Jews received with Jesus being the Messiah, but yet 
it is there. And so, uh, you know, every every man has these, they have these borders that, but they, this is given for them to seek God and to come after him. Now, Paul doesn't get into what he gets into in Romans 1, where he says that when we see this, the hand of God in the world around us, we as a race, uh, a human race, we uh, do two things. We suppress that truth and we exchange it for a lie mm-hmm. in Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. So, But Paul's saying that witness is there. And so these gods that you have, especially this God that is the God that doesn't have, it is not the unknown known God, he says, I'm going to tell you who that is. You recognize that this God is there who created the earth, but now let me fill it in for you who this is. Is that making sense or am I not getting no, what you're, you're make, talking no, about? No, you're making a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to take a little break and reload some questions because they're still coming in fast and furious and I don't want to get Mark all wound up and then have to go to a break. So I'm going Too to... late. Ah, I know. Yeah. So let me know if what your question is, 877-933-2484. Again, Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. Uh, here's a question from Vance. Why do you think that Samson is in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews? Yeah, that's a good question, Vance. I mean, uh, come on, with just one uh, one pillar pull. Yeah, we uh, we uh, the sometimes Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith because there's all these people that the writer is talking about. So many of the verses in Hebrews 11 start with "by faith." Abraham did this. Moses did that, and explains it. And toward the end of that chapter. Uh, he goes to uh, summarize a lot of this. And so Hebrews 11.30, I'm going to start with here. He says, uh, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient as, and after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And now the author summarizes. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. But then I think the answer is going to be right here, Vance. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. You ready for this next one? From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That Remember, that's how Samson's uh, life ends. He had screwed up, but he asked God once more to give him his strength so he can pull down that house with all of the uh, Philistines in there. So I think that's a connection there that the author's making, that uh, even when you screw up a lot of your life, you still can be a person who trusts God to uh, even one final event in his life like this. For some of you, you might be a little older. This might be of encouragement if you've, if you've squandered some of your life. There's, mm-hmm. still, there's still more to do by faith. Great answer. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, all right, and let's see. I'm in now Romans 9. Um, it says, I, sp- I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Mm-hmm. 
my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay? Yep. So then compare that to don't worry about anything, but in all your prayers, ask God for what you need. Oh, I think it's a despairing thing in Philippians 4 there that we're told to be encouraged by God and his promises and to give thanks in that. And in this case, this is an ongoing burden that Paul faced of because he's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters. You know, if you, see you, if you look a little bit more here, it's talking about, the, he says, verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. And it just goes on from there. And so, maybe a little hyperbole going on, okay. because he's not going to squander his salvation. But he's making a point here of the burden that he has. But unceasing anguish in my heart. Right. That's a guy that's got anxiety, right? He's burdened. Yeah. yeah. He's burdened. So, and I like this because I think Paul was probably accused time and time again of turning his back on his people, of being a traitor to them by going to the Gentiles. And so he just wants to make something clear here. You know, he is a Jew. He doesn't value that as if something he can present to Christ. That's clear in Philippians 3 where he says, all these things I count for loss for the, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in him. But that still doesn't mean he doesn't have kindred and the whole nation that his heart bleeds for, that he longs for them to come to light. Uh, Bill, I just have to say, there is a movement among Jews around the world today that have come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and you can sense that same burden for their people. Uh, I'm watching a couple groups on online and social media, and there's a terrific burden and urgency to bring the gospel of Christ to these uh, Jews who are living in this darkness and have not acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. So it's fantastic. It's it's uh, it, you know when you start talking about family and your your people, that that gets people uh, uh, very much in a whole different line of thinking. Is it an anxiety that should be cast out? Well, Paul's got perfect confidence in the Lord, too. You know, he's not despairing here, but he's just trying to make his point. Mm-hmm. All right. Would you discuss the Reformed position about perseverance of faith? There's so many verses that deal with those who do not endure to the end, but fall. Mm-hmm. And so many deal with God not letting people go, being sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Although God is all-knowing, I can't see him forcing continuing faith upon those who don't want him. Yeah. Although he will always invite. This is a a question. In fact, in my theology class, I just got done reading about uh, 50 essays about this with my students wrestling with this whole question about the relationship between God's sovereignty, his election, his predestination, and human will and human freedom. And that's the front door of this discussion. Uh, if God elects people, do we have a choice then to to believe the gospel or are we forced? Are we like mm. uh, actors on a stage where we have to say our part uh, the way that script is written? Well, this is the back door to that same discussion. If God is sovereign and he elects someone and they put their faith in the gospel, can they lose that? 
and uh, this caller is talking about the Reformed view of that. Uh, the Reformed tradition of theology is uh, a word for the Calvinism that subscribes to the five points of Calvinism, uh, all five of them. There are other Calvinists that would consider themselves to be more moderate Calvinists, but those who subscribe to Reformed theology would advocate all these. And if you want me to rattle them off, they uh, they uh, spell the word tulip, and there's a whole bunch of Reformed people that came from Holland, and so mm-hmm. they like this kind of thing. And so uh, the T stands for total depravity of mm-hmm. humanity, that we're completely corrupted as human beings because of sin. Uh, the U is uh, unlimited uh, I'm sorry, the TU is unconditional election, that God elects us. He chooses us for salvation, and that's not dependent on anything we do. Mm-hmm. It's unconditional. The L is limited atonement. Uh, that's been updated a little bit by some Reformed people. They okay. like to call it particular redemption, that Christ died, and the only people that benefit from that are those who put their faith in the gospel. So he died for the elect uh, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, I is irresistible grace when God uh, extends his grace to you to be saved, uh, you will be saved. You cannot resist it. And then the P is what this caller has brought up, is the perseverance of the saints, Mm -hmm. that those who are truly born again, the elect who put their faith in the gospel, they will persevere till they die and go to be with Christ in heaven. Not one of them will be lost. Now, the other big theological tradition that likes to discuss this is the Arminian Mm -hmm. tradition. Yeah. Uh, This came along after Calvinism, and Arminians will believe that uh, that a true Christian who is born again and regenerated uh, can, in fact, lose their salvation. They can do it a couple different ways, either by uh, committing themselves to continual sin and defiant sin. After they put their faith in the gospel, they can lose their salvation. Or in the case of someone who just denounces Christ and renounces him and says, I'm not going to be a Christian any longer, that person is... Uh, going to lose their salvation. Now, uh, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into this thing about the, all the arguments and the scripture passages and that. Uh, Bill, I honestly lose patience with it because I don't think a lot of the... Uh, on the one hand, I'm a theology professor, so I like to get into theoretical things and abstract mm-hmm. things because it helps us think and it gets a good worldview in place. But practically speaking, this question really becomes an issue when you have someone who has made a profession of faith in the gospel. They went forward in a Billy Graham meeting years ago, or they've said yes to the gospel. They've been faithful to read their Bibles. They've seen changes in their lives. Uh, they uh, witness and blah, 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 all these kinds of things. And then they fall away and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's where this becomes practical. How do you make sense out of that person? Mm-hmm. Were they saved in the first place? Good the, question. Many Reformed people would say, well, if they stay with that attitude, that shows they really weren't. They were a fake mm-hmm. uh, Christian. And uh, the really true ones will persevere. The Arminian will say, yeah, they were truly born again, but they lost it. Uh, I don't know which one's true. And you know what? No human being on earth knows which one's true. Probably the person themselves doesn't know which one's true. Only God knows that, whether they were truly born again. But what are you going to do with this person? You're going to try to draw them back to Christ, aren't you? Of course. Aren't you going to urge them to return to Jesus? Whether they were ever saved or not right. in the past, it becomes pretty irrelevant at this point. You've got to, you got to deal with the here and now mm-hmm. and do what you can to draw them to Christ again. Thank you for that. 
It's so, really good. That's very well, it's helpful. They're not exactly a short answer to that. No, thing. no, I appreciate so. it. I like that. It's very helpful. Yeah. Uh, another comment, uh, Bill, we are children of Adam and also Abraham, if born again, mm-hmm. but are not. We are also children in the physical of Noah's. I don't know if I understand that. Do you? Well, if if this is the true that the whole human race came from Noah and his family, yeah, oh, yeah. we're all related to him. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, all right, that uh, we're getting down to the last couple of minutes here, so okay. uh, I don't know how much more we can deal with uh, questions. Um, I love people getting into the Bible. I do too. This, this is, is awesome, best. isn't it? Yes, it's, it's swimming against the tide today of, of the church and the struggles we have. It's one of the major challenges in the church today is to incite and persuade and lure people to spend time in the scriptures. That is what the Holy Spirit is going to use to transform them uh, time and time again. And so this is fantastic that people are asking questions and they're wondering about what's what's in the Bible mm-hmm. here. Rebecca sent me this quote, and I've, this is the second time I've brought it up this week, but I'd like you to hear it and comment on it. Sure. It's by the author Francis Chan. He said, yes. there's, there's no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have time, you need to quit something to make room. Yeah. And I would just put on top of that what Francis says, and that alone time with God, make sure you got your Bible open. Amen. And you're interacting with yeah. that. A lot of people like to sit quietly in a room and wait for some impression from God someplace. Now, I'm not going to ridicule that. Many people have testimonies of God communicating right. to them in that kind of a way. But if you want to take all the doubt away, read his word. This is his word to us. So read it. I know. Mark, thanks for being here. Sure. Have a wonderful fun. time with your grandkids this weekend. Oh, we're going to have so much fun. It's I know almost you are. illegal. <laughs> but it's a big birthday, number three. For uh, what, yep. what grandchild? Ezra. Ezra is going to be yep. three on number Sunday. Two. Sunday mm-hmm. And the gifts are going to be We're going to have many. a great time. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, blessings to you. Thanks for being here. Sure. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. Thanks for all the great questions. we got a great hour coming up next. Rebecca McLaughlin is going to be with us who is incredibly interesting on confronting Christianity. And because hockey resumes Sunday night, we're going to hear from a former professional hockey player and his amazing testimony, Bill Butters. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.